This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. It's my pleasure to introduce attorney Sonia Warrell Asari. She serves as the Regional Director of Integrity and Compliance for Trinity Health of New England. There she conducts investigations, audits, and drafts policies and procedures. She also works closely with diversity and inclusion in conducting trainings and investigations. We got together to discuss how her background and experience informed the conversation surrounding equity. We had a real kitchen table conversation right here at Fluid Truth. This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. I am so happy to have my friend and colleague as my guest today. This is attorney Sonia Warrell Asare. Welcome. Glad to have you on. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So as an overarching theme on this podcast, I like to talk about equity in the justice system, but I know that presents in so many different ways. And being in law, I know we see it in so many different ways. But before we jump into that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe an important tidbit that you might want to share with the listeners? Absolutely. I went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, and had a wonderful experience there at HBCU and joining the Sisterhood, which I was happy that I did. Um, I eventually went to law school at Syracuse University, always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. First year in law school, I said, okay, I like law, but I need to do something a little different. I had my bachelor's in econ, so I made the decision to get my master's while I was in law school and at the Maxwell School. So I did my JD master's degree. And graduated. And as I started my career, my first job offer was working with Travelers Insurance in the insurance uh, space as a regulator. Eventually had the opportunity to join the Secretary of State's office under Secretary Merrill and at the time Deputy James Ballone and went there as the agency legal counsel for the Board of Accountancy, which was the board that regulated CPAs and CPA firms, as well as the uh, part time work in the elections division. And I went and worked for Deloitte for a year, came back and ran, um, came back and worked in the division of business recording office. And then I left and uh, went to Trinity Health of New England, where I have been. And then I got a little bored and decided, oh, let me go and get an MBA. (laughs) So I just finished my MBA at Quinnipiac in May. and I am now with Trinity Health of New England as the Regional Director of Retaining Compliance. But really recently, um, as we have declared uh, racism as a public health crisis, Trinity Health of New England has really stepped out in front of that work. And I've started to get involved in a lot of DE&I training and really have enjoyed that work. I've decided, okay, I'm going to put on the school hat one more time, and I'm going to get a certification from Cornell in January in diversity, equity, inclusion. That's amazing. And as you outlined all that you're working on, oh, I'm like, oh, I have the right person on today because you have been doing this work, and you've been doing this work for, it sounds like, decades. Because, you know, we're, we're not youngins anymore, but, you know, We've been doing this work for decades, so kudos, congratulations, and all the accolades and on your academic um, strides. 
congratulations on thank that. Thank you, thank you. So let's jump right on into some of your lived experiences. What have you seen that informs whether there is equity in the justice system? Yeah, that's a powerful question. Um, and every role, you know, for the most part of my legal career, I've either been in state government or in the private sector. Um, first starting off, as I said, in insurance and now in healthcare. And at some point in your professional journey, you don't get this far without seeing uh, diversity, racism issues crop its ugly head. And I've been to really kind of think about that and magnify it across um, the diaspora and what that looks like. Uh, for me, interesting enough, people think, well, you grew up down south, so you know what racism is. But I grew up in a majority minority um city, Memphis, Tennessee, where your mayor was a minority, the police officers were minority, you knew them, they were your uncles, uh, your friends, fathers. And so it was a little different environment, not to say that underlying racial issues didn't exist. But the first time I think I actually saw racism was actually in law school. And that horrified me. It horrified me because I knew that the people sitting in this room are the ones that are going to be future judges, which some of them have become, future lawmakers, which some of them have become, they're the, going to be our public defenders and they're going to be our lawyers. And that scared me. Uh, I remember the first time I walked into a classroom and I saw the N-word written on the classroom desk. Around the same period, we had uh, a big blackface incident that occurred on campus. And I love my school, um, but there were some opportunities there. And I had gone to a HBCU and I'm so thankful for that because it gave me the armor, if you will, to be in an environment where I was one of six minorities um, in the entire law school class. And having to, every time a case came up and we would discuss it, explain kind of, well, this person got what they deserve. Well, why did they get what they deserve? Did they have an equity? Did they have the right to counsel when we talk about it in the frame of law, meaning, you know, a real right to counsel? Did, were they able to speak about um, their experiences that may have led the inequities in life, the structural racism that occurred before they got to the point where they were in a gang and, you know, doing something nefarious, if you will? And being in the classroom with people that didn't have that perspective and couldn't understand it. It was, you know, black and white, but we would talk about a case and, you know, the defendant was colorless. And you know what I mean when I say that we didn't talk about their race. So we all knew they weren't black <laughs> and then hearing a different standpoint on it. It just, it, it horrified me. Um, and while that has not been my full-time pursuit, definitely in my academic space where I'm teaching business law courses and I do have a module I talk on criminal law, I have to pause and explain the inequities in our justice system. And we talk about maximum sentencing guidelines. And then I say, okay, well, look at, look at this misdemeanor that occurred and let's shift the paradigm and let's look at, you know, Enron and the differences of time that was served in those cases. Do you get it now? And the students pause and they're like, oh yeah. You know, not to say one victim versus a million victims or financial crimes versus a more aggressive, heinous crime is different, but do you see the differences? And then I pause and I talk about bail inequities. Well, if I'm a million dollars, you know, if I'm, you know, Epstein, if you will, and you set my bail at a million dollars, well, that's nothing for me. That's pocket change. And if I'm John Doe 
who, you know, lives in the inner city and you set my bail at $100,000, well, that means I'm staying in jail until I get my day in court. So that has been something that I've tried to do and really advocate through education. And in my work um, from a compliance office perspective, when I'm investigating matters and they come up in all organizations, I'm always trying to ensure that I am ensuring that we are equitably um, looking at matters and considering, are we treating similar people who look different the same? So I know you're speaking from an informed position, but tell me a little bit more. I know at some point you were talking about um, what your family has experienced and what's the lens that you are able to carry on considering the family conversation. Absolutely. Um, you know, I always go back to my father um, because he he left me with so many gems and such a um, legacy to fulfill. Uh, my father was from Barbados, grew up in Boston and went to Harry Medical School as a dentist um, in the 1920s. And so it's, it's 1940s. So it's like to, to imagine that um, he Put himself through school and he always joked i actually started a scholarship that he had 633 dollars, which was enough to pay the first year tuition and the rest he was going to figure it out um and he talked about the struggles of being a minority and walking into an office and someone thinking okay you're the tech or or you're here to clean and saying no this is actually my office you just walked into <laughs> and um those experiences as being a minority professional and the inequities, always having to show up differently, um, being treated on a different scale, work harder, um, double check, cross check, make sure every I is dotted and T is crossed. Uh, those experiences he left me with, and I knew that it wouldn't be an easy feat. Uh, I went straight from undergrad to law school. So I graduated pretty young. Uh, a little less gray hair than I have now. And I just remember always having to wear a suit to work. And people would say, you know, you dress kind of business casual. And I'm like, well, if I dress business casual, I'm going to be treated a little different when I walk into the room. So I need to show up differently. I have to have the extra degree, more degrees than the person I'm reporting to in some instances, because I need to demonstrate that I belong in the room. And um, that's been something that's a burden that we carry as minority professionals. Um, and I think it's a burden that we carry as minorities, period, in the atmospheres that we enter. So I think from uh, experiences with the justice system, uh, I can specifically recall being in law school and I, my then boyfriend, my now husband, um, coming, I asked him to get me something to eat because I was studying for an exam and he came and he called me and he came in the house shaking because he had been pulled over by four police cars who pulled out a gun who thought he looked like someone else. And filing a report and having that knowledge that, you know, this is what I can do, but how many people out there don't have that knowledge, don't know who to call prior to, you know, the George Forge case? What do we do when we have those mistreatments? And then you fast forward to the day that I had a son and saying, I need to be attentional about where I live because my rule has always been he needs to be able to wear a hoodie, carry Skittles, and a can of iced tea. And if that community won't allow him to do it, then maybe I don't want to be there. So these are things that we walk around and we carry, and you know, it's a reality for us. That's so sobering to need to have to 
outline those types of guidelines for your family. Are there other things that inform you when you think about protection of your extended family and your immediate family? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you turn on the news and it's it's heartbreaking. You know, I still remember uh, Trayvon Martin case and it hit me differently because I think it's one thing before you're appearing, you know, you hear about it, you know, we know these inequities that happen, you know, driving while black is, is a thing, you know, make sure you have your ID. And when I was in law school, I was a part of the Black Law Student Association. And we actually would purposely go into high schools and talk about what do you do when a police pulls you over? You know, put your hands on the steering wheel, you know, uh, don't make any quick movements. I mean, these these things sound kind of foreign to some demographics, that you have these conversations with your sons and your daughters when they reach a certain age. I used to joke, they're cute until they get older, then it's a threat, right? Um, and I don't I don't say that jokingly, or I shouldn't say I used to joke, but, but that that's a reality for us. And that's something we have to train our, our kids to realize. Um, I think for me, it's been through education, uh, working with students and giving them the knowledge on what to do when they're in these situations before they occur. I spent an extensive amount of time talking about the Miranda rights. Uh, again, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I haven't worked directly in a criminal justice system, but I spend that time to explain that. What does probable cause mean when someone stops you and says, I want to search your vehicle, right? Who, you know, which, who should you be calling? You know, what should you say and not say? Um, because I think the education part is important. And then secondly, for me, the lens that I do this work on is voter registration, which has been a passion of mine since I was 14 years old, working for the Shelby Crowning Democratic Party in Memphis, Tennessee, getting people rides to the polls on time. So, um, you know, it's really being knowledgeable about the people that we put in position of power to make rules and laws, and then understanding your duty as a voter uh, to have knowledge about the political system, the legislative system, and then understanding the power you have to advocate. And so that's really the lens of which that I continue to do this work uh, is making sure that I'm empowering my students or people I come in contact with. And then I am explaining the importance, the mandate that you vote and be engaged in the political process and advocacy. Um, I have a young group that I work with and I actually have uh, Representative Bobby Gibson coming to speak next Sunday to them um, through a virtual conversation and, and talk about, you know, what does it mean to get to advocate? You know, you have issues as a young 13 or 14 year old that concern you. How do you get engaged in the political process even at that time frame? And that's just something that I think a space that you know, with some of the gun violence we've seen young students do, but not something that has been encouraged uh, before that time period. And so I'm really trying to open their eyes to how can you get engaged in letter writing or testifying um, before the state legislators. So the push for advocacy is so significant. I am so encouraged that you're doing this with a younger generation. So there are those who might say to us in our generation currently, the advocacy arm is not being passed on, but I think you'd venture to say no. I, I think they're more engaged in seeing how they can impact change. And I really believe I give this to President Obama, really the grassroots efforts and, you know, what can you do? I mean, he really encouraged young people in a way that 
act them empowered. I mean, I remember seeing uh, a commercial or, or news article. I can't remember it was, but it was a young man when this Popeye's chicken craze was growing great. It was off the roof about this new sandwich. And he was standing in the line handing out voter registration cards as people were in line to get food. And I said, so, I mean, think about it. It was like a 15-year-old kid. And I was thinking to myself, they know that you, even if I can't vote, I can get someone to vote. I have a political power. I can talk to them about the importance of voting. I can have those conversations in my kitchen table. I can have them with my friends. And then when I'm ready of age to vote, first thing I'm going to do is register. And I call every one of my nieces and nephews on their 17th birthday now in Connecticut and say, the first thing you should do this morning is go and register to vote because you can do so. And that's a power that, you know, can't be taken from you. Uh, and it's something that it's a it's a duty that you get yourself to the polls, get thyself to the polls and vote and advocate. So I think it's important. And I do think they're more engaged. Um, I think for my generation, I as I said, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and there was such a rich history of the civil rights movement there. Uh, I remember in high school, I had the opportunity to speak at the same church that um, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke at before he was assassinated the next day. And you just grew up knowing, like, this is what you're supposed to do. You, you know, go on, you establish your career and you give back and you have this place. And I'm happy to see that thought process expanding across the country in different environments. I love that, Sonia. Thank, Thank you for you. saying that. Now, when you go back and, and incorporate other aspects of your professional life, now with you working at Trinity Health, What's the impact that you're intending on passing along at this point? You touched on it some, but I want you to go a little bit more into it. Yeah, well, I'm excited. Uh, Again, I keep taking on many hats. (laughs) And I recently uh, started engaging a colleague of mine, and we're starting a colleague resource group. Um, And it's it's for women, but with a, a part of it is also to increase our outreach in the community, working with our community health and well-being program. But in addition to that, really starting to talk about pipeline for professional development. Um, And there's a lot of resources, but how do we get it down to the frontline employees to the point where it's, you know, I'm an admin and I'm in school and what's the difference is that going to make in my career? Well, you know, how can we encourage you to get you um, the resources you need so that once you complete that degree, you're ready to go into the next world? So I think it's important, no matter what position you're in, you can't be in any position in America without dealing with something related to diversity, equity, inclusion. Find that space and work in it. And so, um, again, it's not my role in the organization, but it's something that it's important to me. It's meaningful work. Uh, It's a part of my um, matrix that I report to my the director I report to on, the VP I report to on. So I'm always making sure that he understands he's engaged, he's passionate about the work. And he's like, well, what ideas do you have? And I said, okay, well, you know, so I want to start an internship program. And how can we partner with uh, youth in the community and get them interested in working in healthcare? And so these are some of the initiatives that I'm starting now. That's amazing. And especially when we can look at healthcare in this space of last legislative session, you already made note of it, but racism was declared a healthcare crisis, a public health threat. I mm-hmm. think I'm saying this correctly. Yeah. Now, when that legislative um, initiative came through, 
Did that impact your organization any at all? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not here speaking on half of Trinity Health in New England, but it, I can't separate my professional self from my uh, day self. So I, you know, I want to make that clear as a lawyer. <laughs> I'm always thinking about that. I want to make that clear. But um, our CEO, Mike Sabowski of uh, the National um, System Office, it came right out and said, "This is we're declaring this as a public health crisis and we're going to do the meaningful work. And when you think about, I go back, I was uh, recently doing a training and a colleague said to me, part of one of the questions in the group discussion was, um, you know, I, I, I'm struggling. And this person was not a minority. And they said, I'm struggling. You know, we live in America and I'm, I just don't understand why people can't uh, progress. Like, like, you know, there are opportunities. It's a capitalist society. You can get out and you work hard. And I had to take a deep breath. And I said, okay. Let's pause here. And I said, I'm going to walk you down the little path really quickly. And I said, you know, imagine if uh, for me, my father was a dentist, but I had no lawyers in my family. And I said, yeah, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer since fourth grade. Right. It just I always like to advocate and be a voice for people. I had to go and find out how to become a lawyer. I didn't have someone to reach out to and call and say, take the LSAT, you know, make sure you sign up for Barbie classes. This school is good. This school is bad. I didn't have that. I had to do that research. I was fortunate to be at a school that had a good guidance counselor who could give me that research, who could give me the time. And my school was pretty small, but imagine if it was larger and I was one of million students. Now I need to sit down. I need to fill out college applications. And let's say I didn't have anyone to show me how to fill out a college application. And I need to fill out a FAFSA. And I don't have someone at home to help me fill out a FAFSA. And I need the internet. And the public health crisis showed us that we had inequities of internet access. And I didn't have that available. Or I have a father or mother who's incarcerated and I need to put financial information in on the application. And so let's say I overcome all of that and then I get to law school. And someone needs to explain me what the heck is an outline, because I've never studied by using outlines. And someone needs to explain to me about internships and job opportunities and prep for internships and soft skills. And no one is there to do that for me. And I said, now that's just one career path. Now you take that and you multiply it and you get it now. She's like, oh, and I said, well, that's the minority experience. While we're just walking through life living, we're walking through life carrying a concrete block, a ton of bricks, a backpack full of stress, a pocket with holes in it, and trying to continue. So if you don't understand how that impacts your mental self, just showing up into an environment every day where the first thing a person is looking at will who is she representing? You have to represent the entire culture or race or gender, whatever it may be. What does that feel like? It breaks you down mentally. And so for me, when I, when I had those conversations, and again, these are sometimes with healthcare providers, they're like, wow. And I said, well, now you understand why we have high blood pressure and diabetes and things that diseases that are related to stress and why you need to understand those issues when you're approaching them. And it's not just about medication, but getting down to the root causes of, well, what's causing that stress? It's because you're in an environment where your boss is talking down to you or where you're the only person in the room who represent, who's a minority. 
And so every time you say something, you know, you're kind of looked down upon. Are you in a welcoming environment? Are you being denied promotions? Do you have the food you need so that you can eat right? So this medication will actually work. Or are you in the food desert? So I thought when we, and and again, I always call Connecticut the beautiful state of Connecticut because we're ahead of the game. When we recognize this, and I happen to live in one of the towns that said this is a public health care crisis, we we were right on target because it's been one. And and then you see why we have these inequities in our health care. And then the pandemic just exploited it and and ripped the Band-Aid off and said, look, these are the issues. And when you get down to, uh, as I said, I went to Spelman College. So, you know, we spent a extensive amount of time learning the history of America and, you know, how we got here and why people have a distrust for vaccination and all the work we now need to do to get over that distrust and rebuild trust in communities where, you know, a woman would go to a doctor and you go in for a surgery and you come out with no ovaries. You know, that was a reality for minorities or, uh, you know, yeah, let me sign up for this experimental treatment. And then now I got syphilis and you won't treat it. You know, I mean, these are realities. And so we have to rebuild that trust. Um, and we're, I think we're doing that work now. But it, it's a, it takes a long time to overcome. But I think it's so clear how you just walked through just that one scenario. And I find that so valuable. And like you said, magnified, you kind of see what we're up against. What's your hope moving forward? What's next? I I guess if you, for me, uh, for society, I want to believe that my son is going to realize Dr. King's dream, where he will be treated fairly regardless of the color of his skin. And his merit, uh, and the same is true for my daughter, but more so for my son, that his merit will take him as far as it can go. and that he will be able to drive down the street with a walk or run with Skittles or sleep in his bed um, without fear that he'll be treated differently than someone else who has a different shade of skin. And so my hope for my children is that they'll live a better life than I did. And I think we're getting there. You know, I, I we got a long way to go, but we're on the right track. And I am so thankful for that, that these real conversations happen on a daily basis where colleagues are coming to each other and say, you know, listen, I got a question and I don't know how to deal with this. And and, and we're having open dialogues about things that we only talked about at our kitchen table, (laughs) but now we're having open dialogues because change started at the kitchen table, but it won't end there. And it's going to be these partnership and these advocacies and just where we are this, uh, change that is occurring in the world that is like you know really giving me inspiration and hope for the future and um it's that faith in humankind and that this generation will do better than the generation before it so i i'm excited i'm excited about what my grandchildren experiences will be versus mine and i love this and to conclude on this idea that we're now opening the opportunity to have kitchen table conversations. So let that be what catches on, that we're able to have that comfortable, really transparent, authentic conversation across the board. But I'm going to pause here and attorney Sonia Worrell-Asari, thank you so much for being here with us. 
I appreciate your input and your perspectives. Thank you so much. And thank you for having these conversations. This is part of that work. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Johnny Marquat, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Big shout out and thanks to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jackie Callanen, Raynette Shapu, and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcast. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is QUPodcast at QU.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with Chi Naka, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion from Trinity Health of New England. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.